This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. This episode's all about Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. Published in 1973, Gravity's Rainbow has become one of the most revered American novels of the post-war period. It's a hard novel to summarise, the plot being a complicated tangle of characters and situations, self-referential twists and historical detail, riotous humour and pointed satire. The ostensible protagonist is Tyrone Slothrop, an American GI stationed in London at the end of the Second World War. The city is being hammered by the German V2 bombs, but there is something strange going on. Slothrop keeps a map of London with all of his sexual conquests marked on it, but it appears to mirror the map of the V2 explosions exactly. Believing him to have been conditioned to become aroused at the presence of the plastic used in the bomb's manufacture, a mysterious organisation recruits Slothrop to help find the prototype of a new bomb the Germans are rumoured to be developing. When the war ends, Slothrop is cut loose in Europe in the hope that he will be drawn to this mysterious new rocket bomb. This is a skeleton of the plot, which also involves a Russian spy, a squadron of African soldiers in the German army, the Pavlovian conditioning of dogs, and the life story of a sentient light bulb, among many other delights. In his review of Gravity's Rainbow in 99 novels, Anthony Burgess describes it as the war book to end them all, saying that it describes the obscenity of war in a way that was not available to the poets and novelists writing about the First World War. The enigmatic nature of Gravity's Rainbow is reflected in its author. Thomas Pynchon's reputation as a literary recluse has been talked about endlessly, but the fact that he has not capitalised on his personal celebrity allows the work to speak for itself. He's published eight novels, which range from historical epics such as Mason and Dixon, which tells the story of the surveyors that drew the titular line between the north and south of the United States, to strange detective stories such as Inherent Vice, which plays out in such a cloud of weed smoke that it's uncertain what the detective is actually detecting. His latest novel, Bleeding Edge, was published in 2013, and is set in the run-up to the 9-11 terrorist attacks in New York. To help shed some light on Gravity's Rainbow and Thomas Pynchon, we invited Simon Malpass onto the podcast. Simon is a senior lecturer in English literature at Edinburgh University, and has written a great introduction to the works of Thomas Pynchon with Andrew Taylor, which helps demystify many of the themes and philosophies running through Pynchon's novels. If you want to find out more about Simon's book, 
head to the description of this episode and click on the link provided. I'm Graham Foster of the Burgess Foundation, and I spoke to Simon Malpass in September 2021. Simon, thanks for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. Um, we're talking today about Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, how did you first encounter the novel and, and what did you make of it? I, it's, it's one of those questions, isn't it? It's possibly the most difficult question to answer, what, what I made of the novel when I first tried to read it. Um, it's, it, was, it was back in the early 1990s. I was, I was at the time, um, just moving from my, my first degree to, to do a master's degree in what at the time was very, very popular, which was critical cultural theory. Um, and as part of that degree where we were focusing predominantly on sort of um, critical theoretical material, so it's people like Jacques Derrida, Jean-François Lyotard, Jean Baudrillard, um, Julie Kristeva, looking at um, ideas of sort of deconstruction of psychoanalytic criticism of postmodernism, that this, this name kept coming up, which was, which was Thomas Pynchon. And this reference, which everyone else in the class seemed to have read, um, Gravity's Rainbow. Um, I should say that my first degree wasn't in English literature. It was in drama. So most of my background was, was sort of plays, theater, that sort of thing. Um, and at the time, which was about 1993, I suspect, I just got this sense that Gravity's Rainbow was, was the book I had to read if I was going to understand you know, what literature could be. Um, everyone said it was unreadable. Everyone said it was, it was impossible. Everyone said it was the most exciting text in the whole world ever. And I suspect most of the people that were talking about it most had actually not read it. Um, so I, 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 I toddled off, bought a copy, um, sat down and was pretty much had my breath taken away by everything. I don't think I understood much of what was going on. Um, I didn't have, in a sense, the, enough of the history, enough of the context to really grasp it. I certainly didn't have enough sense of the sort of the narratological games that are being played um, in the text. But throughout, um, images, moments, ideas, just kept accumulating, building up. I probably couldn't have retold the plot. I probably can't retell the plot in, in any great detail now, but so much of it stuck with me. Um, it was, as I say, it was about 1993-ish, um, right at the heart, heat, height of the, the Bosnian War. Um, and the sense in the text that struck me at the time was this sense of movement and populations on the move and refugees and and this is a war novel i think we're going to go and talk about this um as a war novel because um one of the things um that uh, burgess does is identify it as specifically as a war novel in his very short review um but one of the things about it is it was a war novel without battles but it was a war novel that looked at the impact of war on um, the the people caught up in it, the people surrounded by it, and I think that was what what really first struck me about Gravity's Rainbow. As I say, I don't didn't get it all. I, I you know, um, but I was I was drawn in by the complexity, the range, and the variety of of tones of styles 
but equally that those moments of, of 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 hilarity and horror that are that are caught up in the focus of the, the sidelines, as it were. So I think I think that's that's my my opening um, response to it. I've read it many times since, <laughs> finding different things in it. But my original impression, as I say, is is that it was it was a novel that was incomprehensible but fascinating um, and fun and exciting and contained all sorts of things that that are immediately you know vivid memorable etc yeah that um, i mean that i think that's uh how a lot of people uh first encounter gravity's rainbow or pinchin's work more generally mm. and I, th I think that that mirrors my own first experiences of of gravity's rainbow as as something that feels important at a sort of instinctual level but but it takes a while for the brain to catch up i, I think that's a, a, a great way of putting it yeah exactly that i mean i think it, as, as i say there was, there was a sense certainly at the time in the early 90s that it was that it, it was an important text to read because it was a text that was talking about the present um so in terms of sort of theories of meaning of, of ideas about what a novel could or might be able to do this was this was a uh, exactly that example but it was also as i say a novel that seemed to me at the time and has seemed since in different contexts to have something really quite important to say even if i couldn't identify exactly what it was saying about you know the moment um about the world in which we were we were living why do you think burgess uh, included gravity's rainbow he says in his review he was he, he couldn't decide if he was going to put v or um the crying of lot 49 or gravity's rainbow in his selection why do you think he settled on gravity's rainbow it's a, it's a good question um and i think it's quite an important question because from from the review itself i don't get the impression that he'd necessarily finished it the review cuts off about sort of 200 pages in, in terms of context, and there's no indication of anything that happens after it. I think, though, that Gravity's Rainbow, certainly at the time, in the mid-80s, was, was you know, considered to be you know, the pension book. This was, this was the, 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 the masterpiece. People were already, you know, critics like Tony Tanner were already calling it you know, the, 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 the candidate for the next great American novel. Um, the you know post World War Two version of Ulysses, etc., and there's clearly a, a sense of that in what Burgess says about Gravity's Rainbow, where he talks about reading it in in um, in the light of um, Paul Fussell's, um The Great War and Modern Memory, um, and the sense that the novel is doing something new, doing something original. And, he's, and, and in the introduction to the 99 novels, he's very, very keen on that idea of, um, you know, he's choosing the novels. He says, I've concentrated mainly on works which have brought something new in technique or view of the world to the form. Um, so not necessarily the best novels, but those novels that have, that have been innovative, that have, that have changed things. Um, and I think what he picks up on quite brilliantly is um, the way in which Gravity's Rainbow does that. Um, Lot 49 and V, he says, are you know, um, playing brilliant higher games with the novel form. 
but in Gravity's Rainbow, those those games, you know, the narrative um, innovations, the narrative experimentations, somehow touch down in a world that we all live in, um, in a way that has the capacity to to, as you put it, you know, do something profound. And I think that's why. Burgess, given Burgess's other interests in his in his writing, given you know what he's doing at that period, um, as far as I know, I'm I'm not the expert on Burgess that, that you guys are, um, but what he's doing in that period seems to it seems to me that Gravity's Rainbow is the one that that best fits this sort of thing he's trying to construct in in ninety nine novels. I, I think you're right, and I, I think actually what what Burgess was doing throughout the seventies, and whether or not the influence of of Pynchon was part of that, was was much more experimental than than mm. his nineteen sixties work. Um, if you look at books like MF, um, which mm-hmm. uh, is an extremely spe- experimental novel, and even even sort of smaller books uh, like uh Beards, Roman Women, for example, is is a that has these sort of strange experiments that seem to be commenting mm-hmm. on on the fictional world and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um and of course the Napoleon Symphony, which is his most experimental novel, which is the the story of Napoleon's life uh structured around Beethoven's Eroica, which it sort of goes even beyond Pynchon with, <laughs> with its sort of ambitions. Um but uh, you you also mentioned that that you didn't think Burgess had read the whole book, which is interesting because the only copy we have in the archive is a first edition, mm-hmm. which um, has the fir- the first hundred pages is replicated at the back of the book instead of the last hundred pages. So there's a printing error in it. Mm-hmm. So if if that's the only copy of Gravity's Rainbow that he ever picked up. Then he he certainly hasn't read the final hundred pages. That that's really that's a really interesting point. Um, I, mean, I think, I, as I say, it, it's it's it's. I'm, I'm not accusing him of pretending to have read it or something. It's on the, the the basis of what he writes that it just seems to me that there's a very insightful account of, of, of I say the first two two hundred and fifty pages. Um, just in that very, very brief review, I mean, what he does brilliantly is, is pick up very acutely um, two or three really key points, but there is nothing about anything after that. Um, and there's no indication in the, the way in which he's talking about those two or three key points. So he focuses on the special operations executive, um, the Second World War, um, but nothing about what they become as, as the novel progresses. Um, nothing about the sort of the the later material that's going on in the zone and the novel's projection of a sort of post-war economy of a post-war world. So, so I think I think there's there's definitely there's a there's there's something there. But it's no it's very interesting that he he his his copy didn't have the last hundred pages. Um, given the last hundred pages of the novel, and given that that's the place where readers most struggle, um, it's possible he could have read the first hundred pages. <laughs> Again, I, I guess so. Yeah, much more as something like um, Finnegan's Wake, the, the the circular novel. I think also where he's coming to Pynchon as as well uh, is through his his wife Liana, who was Pynchon's Italian translator. So she 
uh, translated V and the crying of Lot 49. So uh, I'm sure they would have had conversations over the dinner table about about Pynchon's work. Uh, it was uh, Liana, at the time they met, it was Liana's main literary output was the translation of Pynchon's novels. So, um, you know, maybe maybe that has 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 sort of controlled the way the way Burgess thinks of of Pynchon's work and Gravity's Rainbow more specifically. I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure you're right about that. No, I think that makes that makes again that makes that makes perfect sense and gives that sort of um, you know, biographical basis to, to to thinking about it. But I think it, it, I, I, along with all of that, you know, that that Gravity's Rainbow actually, if you look at the other ninety eight novels. Does fit in there quite well. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, so I think it, I think it, it, it has the importance um, that makes it a legitimate part of the book. You know, over and above the sort of the the as you say the, the interest that 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 clearly um, Burgess will have had um, in Pynchon more generally. I think I think you know Burgess is is it, it seems to me very like Pynchon in in the sort of the encyclopedic nature of his interests, and you know really fierce sort of intellectual um, intelligence behind behind a lot of his a lot of his work a lot of his writing. Um, I, I still I mean, you know it's, it's almost never mentioned, but his 1985. I still think is one of the the, the the most fascinating publication, you know, because of that mixture of, of critique analysis and its wild analysis of 1984, um, followed by a, a, a really very disturbingly bleak text. Um, so, so I mean, I, I think you're you're, you're right. The, the the novels you mentioned about you know from the 70s are really important. But I, I, I put a put a claim in there for 1985. I think it's 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 underappreciated in many ways, um, and I think it, again, relatively, relatively Pynchon-esque um, in, in in what it's doing, in what it's, it's where it's how it's working. That's interesting. Um, so we've talked very briefly about Gravity's Rainbow as a war novel, um, hmm. and it's something that Burgess identifies, uh, and certainly from my point of view. It's not just about World War Two, even though that's when the novel is set. Mm. It's also about the Cold War and I would say Vietnam, which was was going going on when Pynchon was writing the novel. Uh, would you categorize it as a war novel? And and how how do you think it compares to other the more traditional war novels, say like um, The Naked and the Dead, which mm. was published at a similar similar time or or even catch 22 it, it's a war novel without battles um i mean if if, if you if you notice there, there are comparatively few um soldiers in the novel um there's the, there's the schwartz commando the the southwest african um sort of figures who are trying to reconstitute re, remake um the 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 five zero rocket um, for their own means, there's this Major Marvy, um, and a, a wonderful sort of parody of, of, of sort of toxic American masculinity, to put it in, in contemporary terms, um, with his with his group. But but pretty much everyone else in the novel is um, either 
a sort of you know part of the the sort of the the broader sort of sense of this sort of special operations executive um the the, the intellectuals sort of working behind the scenes um to to you know persuade um you know to 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 sort of generate victory you know by none none immediately military means the focus there is not on the grand schemes but what is going on behind very early on in the novel we're told the war the conflict isn't what is important so, so there's a line sort of in the first just after the first hundred pages he says you know where, where someone says you know, don't forget the real business of the war is buying and selling the murdering and the violence, self-policing, and could be entrusted to non-professionals. The mass nature of wartime death is useful in many ways. It serves as spectacle, as diversion from the real movement of the war. The true war is a celebration of the markets. So if, if this is a war novel, it's, it's looking at the, the, the tensions, the figures that are going on behind the war. As you say, it's, it's set, you know, historically set in late 1944, 1945, um, in Europe that, you know, that the war has sort of traveled across, um, looking at the residue, you know, looking at what, you know, in what's called the zone where, where a good deal of the novel is, is set after it moves out of, um, London. Um, you have this, this space that is unpoliced, that is anarchic, that, um, the populations are sort of moving back and forth across. You've got all of these different little micro groups who are representing different possibilities, different different shapes, um, all of which are paranoid that there is something outside, something we don't know about. And this is this is how the, no the novel works in terms of in terms of this paranoia that there is a they with a capital T you know, behind the scenes, pulling the strings, um, and all of the characters, everything we see in the novel as we're reading it, um, you know, could simply be the puppets, you know, being manipulated by this, this, this business that is going on behind the scenes. So, so my reading of it is, it, it is a war novel, but it's a novel that is interested in the consequences of war, uh, you know, both on, on individuals, on, on other groups, um, but it also the consequences, you know, what happens after the war. So as you say, the Cold War, the, the, and, and eventually the Vietnam War, um, it ends in a cinema, um, presumably in a cinema in the 1970s with, 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 a, with a rocket about to descend on it, um, or possibly ends, um, as, as other critics have read, you know, in, in the, the mind of a shell-shocked Vietnam veteran. Um, in a hospital who's dreaming about the characters that we see you know, earlier in the novel. Um, so, so it's, I, I think as, as a, as a war novel, it's, it's a novel with a different, slightly different focus than certainly than the heroics of war or even, um, the, the fighting itself, you know, what, what is at stake? In the novel very often is the the competition between the various factions to commandeer to take control of um, a future um, that is going to be shaped by um, you know first of all rocketry 
Um, so the V2 rocket becomes, you know, as, as, as the 20th century progresses, um, both the, the Apollo rocket and the sort of the, the basis of the intercontinental ballistic missiles, which are, you know, um, shaping the, the, the standoff in the Cold War. Um, but equally, the, you know, everything else that is there, the, 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 the development of plastic, um, you know, plastic plays a big part in it. The, the, the global reach of the sort of the various cartels. So Esso is mentioned, Shell are mentioned, um, IG Farben is, it play, plays a, plays a, a key part in it. Um, so the way in which, um, international capitalism emerges, you know, that was, that was really coming to the fore in the 1970s, 1980s emerges out of um, the, the competition at the end of the war. Does, does, does that make sense? As a... it, it does. And I, I think one thing that struck me when I was listening to you talk there is um, that perhaps we could describe Gravity's Rainbow as a novel about the almost the death of traditional war and the birth of uh, essentially what we see in the world now, which is is war that is fought without soldiers, like cyber war or you know the Cold War or you know that sort of political war rather than than sort of boots on the ground war. Mm. Um, and and perhaps that's what what Pynchon is is pointing towards. I, I think I think that's absolutely it. Um, as I say, I mean, I, I first read it in the in the nineties during the during the Bosnian War, um, and was absolutely struck by that sense of of the desolation that is caused by 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 modern weaponry, and the fact that the 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 victims of that war, and you know, much less the fighting forces, but actually the the civilians who who are caught up in it. So the novel starts, you know, the famous. Uh, opening line of screaming comes across the sky um, with an evacuation. You know the rockets are coming in um, and the people are evacuating. But already, you know, in, in the very opening sentences, we're told that it's too late because of the nature of the V two rocket that is travelling faster than sound. The moment you, you know, by the time you've heard it, it's already landed. Um, so, so there is this 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 incredible opening vignette of a group of civilians, you know, desperately trying to evacuate from what they perceive to be the site the rocket is going to land, which has this sense of of, of doom. You know, they've missed it. They're, they're, de they're dead already. That becomes someone's dream. It becomes the nightmare. So, you know, as we as we read those opening pages, we move from this moment of the of the of the rocket being seen, the rocket being heard to the consequences, the people desperately getting away from the scene of the explosion, trying to get away from the scene of the explosion, trying to escape a fate that has already happened. They're already too late, um, which then becomes a dream, uh, a paranoid nightmare that, that one of the characters, one of the, one of the central characters, Eric Prentice, is, is, is having, um, that then moves into this, this, this very, very strange account of um growing bananas on the tops of london flats and having a having a big sort of banana fry up for your breakfast um etc um it that that is repeated um about sort of three quarters of the way through the novel with 
again, one, one of the pieces I read when I first read the novel and had no idea at that stage what was going on, but an incredible two or three pages, about a thousand words in about three sentences, I think, two very short sentences, and then an astonishing long one. Um, this idea of, you know, of what's going on at the end of the war, this idea of the nationalities are on the move. It's a great frontierless streaming out here. Um, followed by this series of very brief, you know, clauses describing the different nationalities, the Volkdeutsch, um, the Rostock, um, the Poles, um, the Estonians, the Letts, the Lithuanians, the Sudetans, the East Prussians, um, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Croats, the Serbs, the Turks, the Gags, the Macedonians, the Magyars, the Vlachs, the Caucasians, the Spaniels, etc., etc. Um, in this one incredibly long sentence about migration and about this internal sort of stateless migration in the center of Europe um, that's been generated by the war, where everything changes, everything has been lost, everything that, that made sense of the past. Yeah, their traditions, their beliefs, their, their um, you know, possessions are being scattered. So caravans of gypsies, axles or linchpins failing, horses dying, families leaving vehicles beside the roads for others to come live in day and in a night, a day. So populations move across the open meadow, limping, marching, shuffling, carried, hauling along the detritus of an order, a European and bourgeois order they don't yet know is destroyed forever. So again, this the sense the novel plays. The novel plays with this, with this sort of subjunctive future perfect that no one quite, you know, at the moment that something is happening to you, you don't quite know what that that means. You don't quite realize, you can't quite realize the what's actually going on behind your back, as it were. So, so there's, there's a sense, I suppose, of, of, of you know, the key guiding structure, my reading of the novel at least, is paranoia. Um, and that is the modern condition. Right, yeah. yeah. And that's, right. that, that sort of view has gone quite mainstream in, in the world right now, I suppose. I, I think it has. Um, I, think, I think certainly in the 1970s when the novel was being written, there was, there was absolutely a sense of a sort of paranoid politics that was, you know, certainly in the United States um, with Nixon, et cetera. And Nixon, of course, makes an appearance as, as Richard Slub in the novel, um, one of Pinch's less less artistic parodies. I think that the, the anger there is is clearly <laughs> just just distaste for this guy, um, you know. But but certainly there is there is that sense in you know prevalent in the seventies of, of of a real genuine you know paranoia. The, there are people out to get us. Um, you know, the 60s, the, the, the optimism of the 60s has begun to fade. Um, you know, you have the oil crises, you have in, you know, in Britain the sort of three-day weeks and the, um, the, the, the continual sort of elections and collapses of government. But even nowadays, you know, there is, again, that sense that there are, every, what we do is controlled. You know, we, we, we communicate through media that, that other people you know, have access to other people can have our data, you know, that we're being continually sort of um, manipulated. And, and I think that, again, lies at the center of one of the things the novel is doing. We know, we know very little about Pynchon biographically. 
Um, but we do know that you know one of the few things that has been released about him is that his 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 ancestor was one of the first American settlers, um, William Pynchon, um, who who got into terrible trouble by writing a a, a, a tract that that upset um, the the governors of the states um, as a sort of religious tract. And this this gets played out again in um, Gravity's Rainbow. There's this um, the, the central character Slothrop, his his ancestor William Slothrop writes a writes a book on preterition, um, and it plays with this, this this Calvinist distinction between the elect, those people who are going to be saved no matter what, and the preterite, um, the left behind, those people who are not part of the, the the elect community who are not going to be saved, and you know Slothrop William Slothrop the ancestor writes a book on preterition. Where he claims that that the preterite are essential, you know, and um, they, you know, you can only have an elect in, in relation to this preterite, um, and and that upsets the, the 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 people in power, and he's 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 exiled for it, um, and that that comes back in the novel. That the focus of the characters, all of the characters in the novel, have this sort of paranoid feeling that they are not amongst the saved. That there is this this shadowy they or the firm um, or the system, um, all of which you know, capitalized, um, that is that is going on behind their backs, um, you know that are, that that is in control of the world, and that that you know these 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 poor sort of preterite souls uh, are doomed, um, irrespective of whatever they of what they do. Um, but and that sort of and that paranoid structure, I think, structures are through the narrative structures our approach into the world and our sense of what that world is doing. Yeah, I I think you've talked quite quite well about the the politics of the novel there, and and the the subjects of the novel are quite wide. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, obviously. To some extent, it's about war. You've just mentioned there the the American history aspect of it with the the colonial settlers, the consequences of that colonialism as well, and and the consequences of colonialism in Europe, which you mentioned with the the migration of the displaced people after the war, and the the global order of capital you mentioned as well. Um, with with all of these, uh, I mean, we could probably talk forever about what Pynchon is trying to say about all these things, but. But one of the the accusations leveled at at Pynchon is is that that his novels are are sort of devoid of a a moral point of view. Would you agree with that, or do you think Gravity's Rainbow, in particular, is is a novel that has a a moral objective? Um, that's a really difficult question, um, a really important question, but a, a, a very very difficult one to answer. I I, I would say the novel. Gravity's Rainbow, but I think all of the novels are resolutely interested in morality and the possibilities of morality. But finally, and, and equally resolutely, refuse to offer a moral message. That the the way I mean, again, if we take the specificity of, of Gravity's Rainbow. Um, the, the final, the final section of the of the novel is called the Counterforce, and um, you know what we what we, some of what we see in that that final section. There's an awful lot of other, of other stuff going on, some of which is just bizarre. 
um, is the sort of the getting together of a, a, a sort of resistance movement um, within um, what was what began as the Special Operations Executive um, that sets itself up as a counterforce to the system, to the firm, um, and it comes to challenge um, the, the sort of the, the, the globalization um, that is that is going on with you know setting you know challenge the setting of this sort of new world order after the war um but their resistance is 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 pretty futile it's 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 gesture politics it's it's uh, it's invading a dinner party and and poisoning the food so that everyone throws up it's 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 one of the one of the characters you know Roger Mexico leaping on the table and, and urinating on all the guests um but they never actually achieve anything it's it, it becomes this sort of it, it's a staged happening in that 1960s sense but it doesn't get anywhere. You know, where we get to at the end is this sort of fading out, this fading into a present. Um, so I don't think there's a, there's a message. You know, I don't think there's a there's a moral. I don't think, in any sense, this novel is is preachy. If if, if that's a, not too crude a way of putting it, what I think it does is the novel unsettles, the novel disturbs, the novel through the sort of the paranoid focalization of the narrative puts the onus back on us, asks us questions. The frustration of the novel is it doesn't tell us you know, what to think, what the answers are, but it, it, it solicits us to think. Um, it, it's, it's why I think Gravity's Rainbow is, is so absolutely rereadable, um, because you end frustrated. You, know, you, you can very easily get to the end and go immediately back to the beginning and want to start again. You know, because this time it will make sense. This time it will all fit together. Um, but I think, I mean, I think Gravity's Rainbow more than any other pension before or since is a novel that 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 doesn't fit together. Um, it's again the narrative of the novel will solicit us directly. Um, the use of, of of the second person in in, in the narrative it, it it refers again again towards the end even more so to you continually addressing directly whoever's reading it um not giving them answers but just provoking just prodding just pushing um and i, and I think again going back to my original reading of the novel that was that was the sense i got of it and it's a sense that's never left me that it's a novel that that you bring a lot of yourself to because there isn't a sort of an authorial central authorial figure that you can say well clearly you know um what i know biographically about the author is this and therefore it must be you know a conservative novel or a socialist novel or a um, revolutionary novel because those are the politics i don't think it's it it allows you that comfort of settling down and thinking and ticking the box and saying i've, I've solved this it, it's an itch that you keep scratching right yeah and uh i mean quite a lot of critics uh i've forgotten who said it was it brian McHale that said that the novel is unreadable in a sense that um that it, it resists interpretation it can't it can't be interpreted in in the same way as another novel might be um and you've sort of described uh the role of the reader in that in that uh that the reader is is 
perhaps mimicking the roles of the characters who if you take the what we can call the protagonist tyrone slothrop um he's trying to make sense of the world Mm. of the novel as he moves through it but the reader is also trying to make sense of that world at the same time as slothrop and we're never ahead of him really in what in what we know so do you think do you think there's that performative aspect to the novel I think that's exactly it. Yeah, the reader is 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 placed in that same you know preterite paranoid position as Slothrop. There's a, there's a wonderful moment where Slothrop acknowledges his own paranoia and says, you know, actually what paranoia is is making connections. It's taking this sort of random all these all these events that sort of keep hitting me, all these all these incidents that keep happening to me, and trying to find the connection between them, trying to make sense of them trying to sort of fit them together. And paranoia is in that sense for Slothrop is 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 this um hermeneutic drive to, to relate the various events and into a, a bigger system, a bigger narrative. And he says, you know, there there is this moment where he says, you know, what terrifies me is the fact that there might be no system. There might be no connections, that all of this might be entirely random. Um and I think what's interesting about Slothrop is is he disappears. Um, as a protagonist, he's he's very very odd because about hundred pages before the end, he vanishes. He sort of disappears in a in a, in a sort of in a in a puff of signifiers that that never really quite fit together. He's recalled later by this by this 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 figure this voice in in the in the sort of um, the veterans hospital, um, but whether he actually even ever existed is 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 itself sort of called into question i i suppose even before the that he he is removed from the narrative almost completely he throughout the novel he disappears and he's off having his adventures and w- we are forced to to focus on another character whether that's uh Roger Mexico or the russian spy uh, yeah. Chicharine, I think his name is, yeah. um, and we're we're forced to go where Pynchon wants us to look, where and mm. and Slothrop's off there somewhere in the world doing his thing, but we don't find out about that really. I, that's exactly it. Um, I mean, with, with a novel with four hundred characters, you know, at least mm. four hundred named characters, um, you know, all of whom are sort of introduced, and none of whom you know whether they're going to return or reappear. Um, and you know, and oddly enough, you know, the the the, the character. Who is who is focal focal at the end of the novel um, is someone who is briefly, very briefly interu- introduced at the, at the very beginning as someone's you know as, as someone's half brother um, vanishes for seven hundred pages and then ends up being the sort of the, the, the central sacrificial figure this 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 poor guy called Gottfried um, you know that the characters there's, there's, there's the you know character Laszlo Jamf, who who is possibly the sort of the root cause of Slothrop, um, you know, who is who is later described as 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 almost, you know, as possibly even made up, never never having existed in the first place. So I think that 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 shifting in and out of focus is something that is that is that is crucial to the novel. Um, there's there's critic Leo Bassani who who picks up on um, McHale's reading. Um, and compares Gravity's Rainbow to Ulysses. And he says that, you know, the puzzles in Ulysses are like the stations of the cross. Um, they're ritual agonies through which we must pass in order finally to be at one. Uh, whereas in Gravity's Rainbow, 
um, you, you have the sort of the dissolution of solutions, as it were. Um, I, I, I often read, I mean, Crying of Lot 49, um, it's like the early novel by Pynchon, I read it as a sort of inverse detective fiction. You start with some certainty, um, and as every, every new clue appears, you become less and less certain. Um, um, Edith Mass, who's the, sort of the, the central detective figure, <laughs> you gradually have this, 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 this spreading out of possibilities. There's more and more you know, possibilities accrue, rather than a sort of a narrowing down of the possibilities as a detective sorts through the clues. And I think, again, Gravity's Rainbow does a similar thing. It, it leaves us in more uncertainty at the end than we, we ever probably were at the beginning. I think I think that's what Pynchon's doing in a lot of his novels, actually. I think if you boil the the novels right down to their their essence, it they are quest narratives. Pretty much yeah. all of his novels are quest narratives, I would say. Um and and really the the backbone is quite traditional. He sets up these people are looking for this thing, or mm. these people are attempting to achieve this thing. So in the case of Mason and Dixon, they're trying to draw a line across america essentially yeah. um to divide the state the early states um and and it's where he goes from there that that completely blows up that but you know that they all begin with this sort of quest um do you think that's fair to i think to that's entirely fair absolutely um I, yes I've, I've, everything from 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 v at the very beginning uh, where you've got stencils sort of you know, paranoid line drawing, systematizing, um, and and you know, many profane sort of random wandering. Um, there's still that sense, you know, through the 20th century of 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 the quest to, to find the, the the identity of of V um, in in the various manifestations, right through to Bleeding Edge, um, mm. which is the sort of to put it very crudely, the 9/11 novel. Um, mm. I think a novel that that. It really does require a lot more discussion. I'm supervising a PhD student who's working on this and is just is finding some fascinating stuff about it. Um, but again, there is there is definitely that sense of a quest, but a quest that is never quite resolved, a, a, a narrative that never quite ends in, in closure and reconciliation. Bleeding Edge, I think, comes closer to that. Uh, Maybe Pynchon sort of mellowing in, in his old age, right. um, but you know, and it's, it's nothing I think ends quite in the way that Gravity's Rainbow does. Um, but I, I think that certainly is is a, is a key part of, of yes, what his what his writing is doing. Um, as you say, Mason and Dixon is, is is a similar. You know, you can read Mason and Dixon very simply as a historical text, but everything else, everything that makes it the text it is. Is going on in the sort of in the margins and challenging that that idea of the sort of a, a narrative of history that that has a meaning that has a has a result that has an endpoint um, that is clear is 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 unquestionable um, and has a has has a moral has a message. Oh, Pynchon, Pynchon tantalizes us with the the possibility of morality. Um, and that's what makes him fascinating, but he he withholds that, um, and that's what makes him rereadable, and eminently rereadable. I, I think once uh, it's magnetic, isn't it? Once you've mm. caught the the bug, once once you've sort of uh, unlocked the way he writes, it's mm. compelling. You want you want more of it, and yeah. 
you, you just want to be immersed in it. And <laughs> having recorded this, I'm, I'm struggling now not to immediately finish recording this and go read all of his books again in one mass frenzy. Um, I think but, I feel the same, to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and just a, a sort of more general question. What do you think Pynchon's legacy is now? And, and do you see his influence in, in fiction being published today? I, I think I think I'm going to take the cop out, of not the cop out, but the, the, that sense of the you know, the Chinese ambassador when asked about the legacy of the French Revolution and say it's too soon to tell. Right. Um, I think I think we can we can certainly trace very clear continuities with with but, but equally differences um, with with writers like David Foster Wallace, um, who you know brilliant, brilliantly important, um, brilliantly fascinating, and with a lot of the sort of the experimental writing that's going on. Um, in the states and in Britain at the moment, I, even you know, in the 1980s when this, when Burgess was publishing this, I think writers such as Rushdie um, were, Simon Rushdie were, were very clearly you know, drawing on some of the some of the sort of the innovations that Pynchon had made. But other writers like you know, than, than Pynchon, you know, like um, John Barth. Um, Hoover, Barthelmy. Um, there is a sense, and, and certainly one of the things I mentioned in another book, um, that the sort of playfulness of that writing um, is something that, that in the 21st century was, was challenged pretty hard. Um, one, of the, one of the, you know, the first comments after September the 11th was a, a Time magazine article that, that declared that the age of irony was over, um, that we needed sort of to get back to realism, we needed to get back to clarity, we needed to get to, back to sort of moral, you know, unambiguity. Um, and I, I sense there's a lot of still a, a, a desire for that, an urge for that um, in a lot of writing nowadays. But I think that playfulness is something that is is in what I find the interesting writing nowadays. I mean, and that can, that can range from um, you know someone like Jeanette Winterson um, to Katsuyori Shiguro um, to actually the genre genre writing, science fiction writing, someone like Peter Watts or Paulie uh, Greg Egan. Um, in Scotland, someone like Charles Stross or you know, Ian Banks, late Ian Banks, um, there, there is that that capacity to play, capacity to sort of withhold, you know, immediate satisfaction. Um, I, what, what I'd say, going back to John Keats and the Romantics, that that idea of negative capability, the pleasure of being in uncertainties without sort of infinite striving after fact and reason, as Keats in, in a letter puts it. Um, as having an aesthetic payoff, as having a pleasure associated with it, and I think I think I I, I can't trace a clear legacy. I don't want to trace a, a sort of genealogy from Pynchon to you know obviously someone like David Foster Wallace um, as a as a particular genre or a particular trend in writing. But I think Pynchon having happened or Pynchon continuing, I hope to happen. I mean, hoping there's going to be another novel um then writing itself literature itself can't retreat from that 
and shouldn't retreat from that. Okay, and uh, one final question, uh, one question that we're going to ask everybody on the on the 99 Novels podcast. Uh, if you could add a hundredth novel to Burgess's list, what would it be and why? Um, this, this, is, this is the question I wish, wish you hadn't given me any prior notice of, because I've been racking my brains about this for, for <laughs> ever, since, ever since you first asked. Um, I, look, looking at the list, and given that I've been asked to talk about Gravity's Rainbow, I think I'd go for another novel from the 70s, um, which is... I mean, this is this. I mean, there's, there's numerous ones I could choose. Um, anything from a sort of a nice light P.G. Woodhouse, you know, one of the later P.G. Woodhouse novels, um, to to you know um, something much more much more canonically sort of central. Um, but given given that sense of, that it, he's interested in experimental and what one can do with fiction that hasn't been done before, there's a novel by an American writer called Samuel Delaney um, called Dahlgren. Um, Delaney is uh, an African-American writer and Dahlgren from a um, novel from the mid seventies, I think from 1974 um, is a sort of a science fiction novel. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a broadly dystopian novel. It's set in a, in a town called um, Bologna, um, which is a town right at the center of the United States. But, some sort of revolution has happened. Something has happened and the, the town's order has disappeared. Um, and it becomes a place where um, a series of sort of countercultural gangs are, are wandering around. There's, there's a few sort of bourgeois families that are sort of clinging on by their fingernails. Um, and it's, it's, it's a novel that seems to me in some ways a sort of companion piece to Gravity's Rainbow. But equally is is doing a similar thing. It has been called um, the African American Ulysses. Has been, I mean, just as just as you know, Gravity's Rainbow is is, is sort of the, the postmodern Ulysses. Um, it's always also been called sort of been referred to as the LGBT Ulysses. Um, it's a very very experimental novel. It's a very very complex, challenging, again very funny but very bleak and sometimes disturbing novel. Um, but like Finnegan's Wake. Sort of begins halfway through a sentence and ends with what we assume to be the first half of that sentence. But it's a novel that, that explores the consequences of the American counterculture um, in, 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 I think, a more direct way than um, Gravity's Rainbow does. But I think looking at that list of 99 novels, I think it's one that, that could interestingly fit into it. So that that would be my answer, I think. Great, thanks for joining us uh, on this podcast to talk about Gravity's Rainbow. I think I'm I'm hoping that that our conversation has has turned a lot of people on to to what a, a what an amazing book Gravity's Rainbow is. Well, thank you, Graham, and thank you for asking. I mean, some really really perceptive and helpful questions. Um, it's been it's been great to talk about it. Um, one, one should never stop talking about Pynchon. Um, there's always more to say. Um, and in talking, you, you discover things that you hadn't realised you'd already known. I agree. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Graham. You have been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Thomas Pynchon by Simon Malpass and Andrew Taylor is published by Manchester University Press and available now. 
If you'd like to get involved in the 99 Novels conversation and tell us what 100th novel you would add to the list, you can use the hashtag 99novels on Twitter. To find out more about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor. It's performed by No Dice Collective, who can be found online at nodicecollective.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.